0: If you're looking for a way to help birds or take your support to the next level, this May I would love for you to join the Birds Canada Birdathon. It's easy to participate in and helps raise thousands of dollars for bird conservation. Learn more at birdscanada.org slash birdathon. Now let's get to the episode.
1: From Birds Canada, this is the Warblers.
0: This is The Wake-Up Call, a special podcast series from The Warblers by Birds Canada. I'm Andrea Grass.
1: I am Andres Jiménez.
0: Welcome to another episode of the Wake Up Call. Today we're learning about another elusive bird, much like the Bicknell's thrush, many of us may go our entire lives without seeing this species, the Marbled murrelet, which makes it challenging to understand and fully appreciate how our day-to-day actions are impacting them. Like all of our Wake Up Call episodes, we're joined by an expert who is working to protect this species, and together we're going to try to figure out what we can all do to help this bird. Today, Andrews and I are joined by David Bradley, who is based in beautiful British Columbia. David, so nice to have you with us to tell us all about the marbled muralette. My so- pleasure
2: to talk about marbled muralettes, uh, one of my favorite birds on the coast here. And it's mostly because, uh, well, because they're a cute little bird, but also because they're so elusive. They're not a bird that people see very often unless you are out in a boat, um, which most people aren't, then you generally won't see them. They only come to the, to the coast to, to breed. Uh, or in to breed, otherwise they're out to the sea. They're just adorable little, um, I hate to say analogous to ducks, but they float on the water in this. <laughs> because they're not ducks. They're not
0: They're not mm-hmm. ducks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what made you first discover them and fall in love with them?
2: Well, it was through a, a, a whale watching trip, actually, from Tofino when I was about 17. Uh, wow. of, yeah. So I was very lucky that I got to see a, a be on a wheel. You were super trip. young. Yes. Yeah. I visited when I was. When I was a teenager, before I lived in Canada, actually, I visited and went on a a boat trip. And being a bird watcher, I had to have my binoculars in my hands, of course. And uh, yeah, we saw some mobulets then. And I've seen them at, you know, seldom times since then. Occasionally from the coast, you can see them. There's several sites around Vancouver you can see from the coast. Most recently, I was out on a boat from Campbell River and we saw a few of them swimming past. Um, But yeah, they're they're quite elusive, difficult to see.
0: And now you kind of advocate for them. Could you tell us a bit about your role with Birds Canada?
2: I'm very lucky to be the director of the British Columbia Office for Birds Canada. I'm out here on the West Coast. And uh, I guess from a programming perspective, we, we engage with, with Marble Murrelets through our coastal waterbird survey. So that's a, long-term, a long-running term, a long survey that's been running now for over 20, 22 years, I think. And so uh, we have volunteers up and down the coast to collect data on seabirds. Uh, and Marble Murrelets is one of those seabirds. Uh, so there are a few sites where they get seen quite frequently. but uh, There are many sites where they don't get seen. Mm. We know that they're not
1: everywhere, and they're, they're definitely out there, though. I knew nothing about marble muralettes until I started preparing for this episode. I'm not surprised that you've never seen or heard of this species, because uh, most people don't get to see it. They're quite elusive. Make the most awesome visual image of a marble muralette for us. They're really cute, I would describe them.
2: They're small, like a small duck, basically. They're a seabird. In the winter period, they're... Uh, Plumage is black and white. Generally, it's white underneath and black on top with a very noticeable white uh, wing patch. In the summer, they molt into very different plumage, though. they got their namesake marbling, and they're basically brown with white marbling patches throughout the body. They're beautiful little birds, and, and it, what's cute about them is they are usually seen in pairs. So people who do see them often relate to them in that sense that they're not usually in gregarious groups. They tend to associate just with their pair member. And then you see a pair of little birds, black and white birds during the winter, uh, floating around, and most likely there will be marbled murets.
1: Tell me about their faces, because there are many faces of seabirds, and I can't, I struggle to picture this one. How would you best describe their face? Black on top
2: and white underneath. Uh, they have a, a black patch around the eye, and they have a very pointed beak, a sort of conical shape. Usually that white patch is the most distinctive part of their body, the, the throat and the neck, uh, and going down to the underside of it.
1: And how big are they? Are they like a football? Yeah, about the size of a football. So I don't know if you know
2: what a green teal is. The green teal is a small bird you see on the, in wetlands, especially here on the West Coast. So they're about the size of a green-winged teal, like a small duck, basically. Uh, less than uh, 30 centimetres, about 25 centimetres long. And they have very short wings that they use to power underwater, almost like a imagine a penguin swimming underwater. Well, that's similar to Marvin Muralet. The Muriel are
1: a species of owl in the northern hemisphere. They're basically the equivalent
2: of penguins you find up here.
1: Before you tell me what alcid's are, I'm imagining somewhat of a grouse in the water. I think that's what I'm imagining—the closest mental picture that comes to me. Well, they're not a perching bird, so you
2: wouldn't see them like a robin. Uh, they tend to be—they float like a duck. Uh, I hate to use that analogy of a duck because they're not ducks at all. Uh, but they Maybe do float like ducks. Like a puffin. A yeah. puffin. Yes. yes. Everyone knows a puffin. Like a smaller version of a puffin. Tell us about the alcid's. Oh, whilst it's an amazing group. So the mures and murlets, basically usually cliff nesting seabirds or burrow nesting seabirds on, on some islands. Uh, and they usually breed in large colonies to avoid predators. However, the uh, mob is is quite an enigma in this group because they, as I mentioned, they're very solitary and they don't nest on cliffs or on islands. They're really an intriguing group because they usually occur in, in cold waters and they feed on fish mostly. The smaller ones might feed on zooplankton, for example, but uh, usually it's fish species they feed on.
0: You say, you know, you're not going to see them unless you're out on a boat, likely. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they mostly along the west coast of Canada or, or where exactly do they live?
2: Well, they're all around the, the circumpolar regions of the world. So mostly in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, so you find puffins in Europe, for example, and on the east coast of Canada, the classic puffins, North Atlantic. Uh, on the west coast, you get horned puffins and tufted puffins. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the most, most commonly known species of owls that are the puffins. The guillemots, or mires, as you call them in North America, or another uh, species that are quite common around the Northern Hemisphere.
0: Mm-hmm. And the marbled muralets themselves, are they just in Canada or do they extend out to a wide range as well?
2: Their range is from all the way up in Northern Alaska down to Central California on the West Coast. Quite a broad range.
1: So, But in Canada, they, wouldn't, they would only be found in British Columbia. That's correct. Yeah, you don't find them inland. And where in British Columbia would you be able to find a marble mural that is not on a boat? During the summer period, that's when they breed. Uh, And unlike the other birds that I described before that nest on islands, these birds nest
2: inland, usually up to 30 kilometers inland. uh, And they nest in a very special place. So they're
1: very uh, particular in nesting on tall, old-growth trees, tall coniferous trees. This seems to be very specific, like a seabird nesting in not any tree, but all growth trees. When was it that we discovered that they nest in trees? Well,
2: that's one of the really cool things about mild is we didn't know where they nested for a long, long time. You know, we knew where all these other birds nested. I think black swift was another species that we didn't know where they nested, but uh, no one had any idea. And there was lots of searching for, for their nest uh, and it, because they're so uh, discreet and and careful about where they approach their nesting sites is that people generally wouldn't see them. They usually don't visit their nests until nighttime. So unless you're standing there in the forest waiting and you have to see them approaching the nest at night with night vision goggles or something, then you generally wouldn't see them. So it wasn't until the 60s and 70s that their nests were found, which is... Phenomenal when you realize that nearly all other bird species, their nests have been described in North America until that point.
0: And would they make sounds? Like, would you hear that they're nesting near you?
2: Not really, no. Their their Mm. vocalizations are generally not made frequently. Um, They're very discreet, and they do that for a reason. Um, They're really trying to avoid those raptors, such as uh, peregrine falcons and eagles and crows and ravens. Those are the main predators that you find feeding on the species. They generally want to nest in places at the tops of these coniferous trees. They build mossy platforms at very tall trees so to get that clear line of sight where they can see predators approaching or they can jump out of their nests and glide into a flying position.
1: For many listeners, it sounds normal for a bird to nest on a tree. But for those listeners that know seabirds, you will know that this is incredibly rare. The majority Mm -hmm. of seabird colonies are on the ground in isolated islands or by the coast, not really on huge old Grow trees, which makes me think. David, is this unique among their family members among the alcid?s Like, only marble murallets do this. I believe so. Yeah, I believe that's the only species of alcid that breeds in tree.
0: Is there any speculation as to just like like you figure predation? But is there any other speculation as to why these birds would have evolved this way?
2: It makes sense that they would be avoiding predation by nesting in these trees. Also, you want to be a certain uh, humidity level, uh, and that would be more uh, away from wind, for example, that might uh, mm. dry out their nesting platform. And okay. also, yeah. it's, it's a place where, without wind, and they're not subject to extreme temperature fluctuations. You know, the forest generally constant temperature, so
1: that would be a reason yes. to nest in a forest. How do you like your coffee, Andre? Cream? Sure
0: mine, bird-friendly, certified.
1: Then I have just the brew for you. Birds and Beans Coffee Roasters only use beans from farmers who keep the native forest habitat intact, growing coffee in the shade of a variety of native trees.
0: That's good for migratory birds.
1: Good for everyone. This coffee is even certified by the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center. It protects biodiversity, supports sustainable farming and its fur trade. And organic, too.
0: Ah, not to mention delicious.
1: Deliciously bird-friendly. If any of our listeners also like their coffee bird-friendly certified, here's how to get it. Order online at birdsandbeans.ca slash warblers. Make sure to use the slash warblers because that means birds and beans will also donate 10% of the purchase price to support this podcast. You can also use the link on your podcast player.
0: Sounds great. Andreas, how about another cup? Let's do it. I love an old growth forest. Oh, it's beautiful. Like that still, it's moist and kind of cool and Mm -hmm. quiet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They picked a good spot to nest.
1: Everyone should be searching right now how it looks, how a marble mural nest looks like, because it looks like a fairy tale. Like all the drawings and images I've seen is of their nest in this stump in a huge tree, completely covered on moss, and then just them sitting there. It's the most one of the most beautiful nests I've seen. How are marble mullets faring in Canada? Not well, unfortunately. They're threatened on the endangered species list.
2: IUCN treats them as endangered. That's because their populations are not doing well. You know, Canada has uh, you know about a quarter of the world population. The majority are up on the west coast of the U.S. But Canada's population is not doing well. We know that they've been declining for a number of years, and a lot of effort has been put into trying to figure out what we can do to try and you know cease that decline. Uh, but unsuccessfully, unfortunately, they're continuing to decline.
0: You said they're so elusive and evasive. Mm-hmm. How how do we know what their population's doing?
2: Well, that's a hard thing to get a figure on. I mean, you can count them at sea, which is something that we hope more involved in. It's been done a lot in the past. Uh, and then they try and attract some of them using radar technology. So in these fjords or inlets that come in from the coast where frequently the birds will gather before they approach the nesting site, they often have some radar sites set up. And they actually try and Count them as they come in those inlets as a way of getting a census of the population. But of course, we don't really know how many birds there are out there. And what
0: are their biggest threats?
2: Like most birds, it's habitat loss. And because that habitat is all growth forest, their breeding habitat, uh, then the loss of all growth forest is, is definitely the biggest threat that they have. In fact, if you look at the reduction in all growth forests in British Columbia, which in the past 30 years has been about 20 to 30% loss of all growth forests, that mirrors the loss of that populations is almost a perfect match. It's a pretty strong indication that that's what's causing the decline. There are other threats to the species as well. Um, you know, oiling at sea is a big threat to birds during the winter time, especially when they're not breeding. Climate change issues are always something that's threatening bird populations, primarily because um, a lot of their forest sites would be uh, perhaps warming up, which make it difficult for to maintain those mossy, moist uh, nesting platforms. Uh, and also we know that the overfishing is a big issue as well, because they feed on uh, bait fish. So um, capelin, for example, or small herring or salmon, young salmon species, a reduction in those would lead to uh, a reduction in habitat, so sort of prey loss for mild So there are a number of threats facing this,
1: primarily facing this species, primarily it's August uh, forest. Contrary to other species that we've reviewed, like lychee storm petrel and piping plovers, which have many, many different causes for their decline, there is one pretty clear cause that it's even mirroring the decline of the marble murelets, and that is the cutting of the old growth forest. Can you elaborate or tell us a bit more of the context of this old growth forest logging that is happening in British Columbia? Yeah, it's been a contentious issue in British Columbia for many decades. Up in Haida Gwaii, there are a number of protests
2: in the past about the extent of all-growth logging. And recently, of course, there was a, a quite strong protest against that, which got a lot of international attention. People realized that you know safeguarding these all-growth forests has a lot of strong importance, not only for the species like modern murelets, uh, but also for the invertebrates that might live in that forest uh, and for cultural collections that indigenous people have for those forests as well. So it's a very contentious issue in British Columbia. The provincial government has been put under a lot of pressure
1: to defer a lot of those logging concessions.
2: but that's only a temporary
1: a temporary deferral every time i hear you speak about british columbia it reminds me of the of the tropical forest in costa rica right with this right. Yeah. 30 40 High up meters tree and super thick, completely covered in moss and epiphytes and full of life. And you've provided another piece of the image for me. And that is is that connection to indigenous people and how the Haidas are connected to this old growth forest. Mm-hmm. Marble murlets and indigenous people care, use and live in this old growth forest. And are they indigenous connections to this species conservation efforts? There are probably spiritual connections. I don't think there are any economic
2: connections or sustenance connections. There's not really any evidence that they were consumed widely, primarily because the species is not is, is quite elusive, uh, and there's not that much meat on them. So they're not they weren't harvested traditionally. Um, but if you look at the plans a lot of nations have, especially for example the hyder, it's a clear indication that it's an important cultural species because they often use that as an umbrella species to protect. Uh, Protect land, And they are a great umbrella species because they um, they encompass a lot of the ecosystem, not only themselves, but also, the, as I mentioned, the invertebrates um, and the tree species that might grow in there are all under the same umbrella, in the sense, in
1: the conservation perspective, yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you protect one species and it, exactly. it covers a whole bunch of other things.
1: Including people. Including yeah. people. Have indigenous people joined the conservation of marble murrelets? There's a very strong connection to the land and they,
2: they definitely want to protect those all growth forests because it means a lot to them.
0: If everything went the way you'd like to see it and marbled murrelets were fully protected, that would have a lot of positive spin-offs, right? Like what other benefits would we see?
2: Well, a lot of animals uh, re- you know, require these all-growth forests. You know, you look at grizzly bears, for example, which are very important for indigenous nations and important for tourism, for example, very important part of the ecosystem. Uh, they would be protected as well by protecting these all-growth forests. Um, there are other species as well, such as western screech owls are a good example, that use these all-growth forests. Um, and many of the mammal species as well, like old-growth forests. Um, another good species is the northern goshawk, the subspecies you find on the coast here. They require large, old trees. So you protect a mob of through the reduction in old-growth forest loss, and you protect a number of different other species on the coast too.
0: So to really get conservation of miralets, uh, fully fully in swing, who would be the main actors to get that really going?
2: I think working with indigenous people is, is very important. So encouraging the protection and, and research into why declines are happening and ways that we can try and reduce that loss is important. Engaging with First Nations on that. Of course, a lot of the fishing industry needs to be engaged because if they're harvesting fish too much, they need to be, I don't say told what to do, but they need to be informed about what the issues are. Uh, and I know the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, obviously, is keeping track of that. And government agencies, agencies as well are looking very closely at this, not only the the federal government, but also the provincial government, uh, you know, they had a marble recovery plan in place for a number of years, and so they're really ramping up the reduction in, in loss of the species. Um, primarily, it's all growth forests, as I mentioned before. So that's that's how you answer the question, really, is to mm-hmm. stop logging down the logging the habitat.
0: Those are all really, really big. Um, you know, looking at big industry and, mm-hmm. and big mm-hmm. big influencers. Uh, what about the individuals? How can they help the species?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. What can you know the listeners now uh, do to protect the species. It's a contentious issue, as I mentioned before. Uh, you don't necessarily have to get out and protest, but you can lobby your, you know, your your local MLA or your your MP or something. Write them a letter and tell them what uh, birds like maldiv mullets mean to you, and, and what they might mean to indigenous groups, and why they should be protected, and why August forest should not be cut down. You can you can always do that.
1: You've told us the story of this rare to sea species that spends a lot of its time in the ocean that, of course, gets in contact with fishing gear and oil spills. And then when it comes back to the coast, it comes back to this fairy garden of giant trees to nest among the moths. And that there is a very clear indication that cutting down those huge trees, of course, is going to affect them because they wouldn't have where to nest. What is the main lesson that this species taught you and is teaching us about how we do conservation or how we relate to wildlife?
2: I think a balance is important. It's important to recognize that there's there's always going to be threats coming from, whether it's threats to log industry or, or threats to forests from logging. And it's easy enough to say, well, stop doing this and do that. But I think just having open dialogue and discussion about ways that, that you can protect culture and where you can protect the economy and ways that you can protect birds and the forests without trashing any one of those things this is an issue that's been faced and the government's facing uh, for many many decades so if it was
1: easy they would just have done it already andrew what about you what did you get out of this story
0: I think um, what's really interesting with this species is how you'd mentioned that we didn't know they nested in trees until, you know, like the 60s 70s. And that makes me think about these big ecosystems that we think we know everything about, but maybe Mm. we don't. And there's Mm -hmm. potentially a lot going on that we don't fully understand. And when we work to protect a species, we're we're probably doing so much more for that ecosystem than we even realize.
1: In my case, David has just said a quote, a phrase (laughs) that really brought this home to me, he said, it's easy enough to say, don't do that. (laughs) And I've thought of so many times I've said, don't do that when it comes to a conservation issue. But it is very hard when you're the one that depends on that login to survive right and so it makes me think that we know so clearly that this is the issue that is threatening this species and the answer can be so clear as well but so hard to pull off so hard to do that i'm i'm hopeful that many people listening to this will take action on how they consume wooden products, on the, how they find sustainable wood, and on how we support the communities that are linked to these products in order for them to make a living.
2: Yeah, you mentioned a very, very important point, Andres. Um, you know, making sure that the, sure that the wood products you purchase are certified as being sustainably uh, harvested uh, in, in some way that's a renewable. Rather than cutting down all growth forests, that are not really a renewable resource. It takes so long for these to grow longer than the life of the plant actually um, to regrow because the whole ecosystem has to reform, not just as the tree itself. So it can take a long time to replace. So if you're purchasing wood products, whether it's tables or paper, for example, definitely try and use sources that are sustainable. Purchasing all-growth forests, purchasing products made from old growth forests is, is not a good thing.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us, David. I love learning about this species, and I hope uh-huh. that maybe one day I'll be able to get out to BC and go on a boat trip with you, and we could go and track some down.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. I know there's uh, several of them, actually, if you come out here. Mm-hmm. They're not easy to find in Vancouver. You've got to tend to go further away, but well, that's I great. can take you guys no. out if you come. Can you show Don't me a bear me. in the process? Ooh, that's tricky. I'm sure if we go up to further north, up the northern part of the Salish Sea, you can find bears. Yes. All right, road trip. Thank you, David. You're very welcome. Have a good day.
0: Before we go, I wanted to just take a moment to thank uh, a reviewer. We just got a really, really awesome review. I'm going to read it out because I love it. It says, I love the Canadian content in this podcast. The episode about planting a bird garden was the push I needed to take out a section of front lawn and add some plants for birds. Today, I planted a red osier dogwood, wild columbine, stiff goldenrod, and some native prairie grasses. So excited to see who shows up at my feeders next year. Ah! (laughs) <laughs> like what an incredible review thank you so much for leaving that and please everybody else if you've had a uh, positive bird actions in your life as a result of this podcast or any other programs or volunteering gigs that you're involved in let us know we want to hear feedback on social media leave reviews on your podcasting platforms subscribe all of that good stuff it really helps us keep this podcast going and keep the support up so thank you hope to hear more of these great stories The Warblers is produced by Jody Allaire, Ruth Friendship Keller, Kate Dogleish, and Andrea Gress. This episode was edited by Greg McLaughlin and engineered by Katie Zhang, with music by Jose Mora and art by Alex Nichol. Until next time, keep birding!